0: Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus, the 17th chapter, if you will. And We've been giving you uh, some high points in the book of Exodus. We did that through the book of Genesis, and I might bring you up to date. It doesn't hurt to review once in a while and see what you've learned. If you'll remember in the first chapter, we had Israel in bondage. And open your Bibles to the 17th, by the way, while we're uh, telling you all this. In the first chapter we had Israel in bondage, oppressed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And then we had the birth of Moses, the deliverer of the nation, and the call and commission of Moses in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4 we had the credentials he, uh, that God gave him of the deliverer. In chapters 5 and 6 we had a conflict that began between Pharaoh and Moses. And chapter 7 through 11, if you'll remember this section, it's a very important section. That in the book of Exodus, chapter 7 through 11, you have the ten judgments that uh, God sent by Moses, and of Moses upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and four compromises of Pharaoh to try to attempt to compromise with God and with uh, Moses about the deliverance of the children of Israel. So in that section, Chapter 7 through 11, you have those things take place. Chapter 12, you have the Passover, and then chapter 13, the sanctification of the firstborn. And chapter 14, the crossing of the Red Sea. Chapter 15, we had last week, and 16, the song of redemption and the manna. The fifteenth was the song of redemption, and the chapter 16 was the manna. And then tonight we have water from the rock and war with Amalek. And then we have uh, a chapter where uh, it's a kind of a picture of the millennium in chapter 18, but also in the latter part of 18 we have uh, Jethro giving instructions to Moses as how to distribute his uh, power and responsibilities, which we're not sure is uh, the very thing God wanted him to do because he has to share it with someone else instead of uh, doing the job that God gave him to do. And that's to be disputed or discussed as to whether or not that was the best thing. Later on, God uh, carries it out through uh, uh, the elders of Israel, and He distributes that power of Moses to the elders of Israel when when Moses had it all all the while before. And then we find in chapter nineteen, Israel comes to Sinai. In chapter twenty, the giving of the law. We won't discuss the rest of it because I don't know how far we'll get. But we're in chapter seventeen where we have water from the rock and war with Amalek. Water from the rock and war with Amalek. Let's look at the 17th chapter, and we'll try to give you some of these high points now in the 17th chapter. And we usually read a lot of Scripture and point out some things as we go along. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim. The word Rephidim means a barren place. And it says, And there was no water for the people to drink. They came to this barren place, Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses. Now, if you remember the last uh, thing that happened to them, they had had many blessings from the Lord, and uh, God had given them manna for 40 years. They'd had some experiences already experiencing the bitter waters, and God made the bitter waters sweet, and God gave them manna from heaven in the 16th chapter and provided food for them while they were hungry. And now they come to a place where they're going to be thirsty, and they still come back with the same old complaints. And so in verse 2 it says, Wherefore the people did chide with Moses, instead of praying to God. They start criticizing Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of uh, Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? If you have chapter 16, verse uh, 3. Notice how, how it corresponds. 16.3 says, And the children of Israel said unto, unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread uh, to the full, for ye have brought uh, us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You see, they, in the 16th chapter, they said, God, you, uh, Moses, you brought us here to kill us with hunger. This whole assembly. In the 17th chapter, and God had given them manna from heaven, and had fed them with angels' food, and now their complaint is they're out of water now, and, God, and they say, you brought us here to kill us with thirst. You know, if it's not one thing, it's something else. Is not the same God that provided manna for them able to provide water for them? He provided manna when they were hungry, and food when they said they were going to starve for hunger, and and now they say they're going to be killed with thirst. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. You see how the people turned on their leader? Instead of looking at themselves and saying, We need to ask God for help. Instead of praying, they're arguing and murmuring and complaining. You know, a lot of times you and I do that. Instead of praying to God when we need help, we do start arguing with uh, the leaders and we start blaming someone because we don't have it. And, of course, they always blamed uh, Moses and Aaron for what was taking place. You know, when something goes wrong in the church, you know who's to blame? Need I to say? Well, you'll find it true every time when something goes wrong in the church. The preacher the associates. Brother Randy, you're about to catch it pretty soon. The Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people. What does God say when, when the people murmur against Moses? Go on before the people. You just have to keep on, don't you? Take with thee the elders of Israel, and thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river. Take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock, in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He says, take the rock. Take the rod and stand upon the rock. And he says, I'll be there. And when you smite the rock, there waters will gush forth out of the rock. There's a couple of places in the Psalms. Let me see if I can find them that's worth reading here. Uh, in Psalm uh, 78, verse uh, 15, "...He clave the rocks in the wilderness, and gave them drink out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock, and caused the waters to run down like rivers. And they sinned yet more against Him, by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. They tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God, and they said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness?" Behold, he smote the rock, and the waters gushed out, and the streams overflowed. Psalm 105, it says this. Let's see if I can find it. In verse uh, 41, he opened the rock, and the waters gushed out. They ran in dry places like a river. He remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. So God always remembers that he promised to be with Israel. You and I sometimes think that God has forgotten, but if God has made a promise, He made a promise that He would deliver the children of Israel out of bondage and lead them into the land of Canaan. And regardless of all the trials along the way, He was going to do exactly that. You know, if you glance back in your mind or think back in your mind of how the nation of Israel and their redemption corresponds to the individual believer and our salvation and redemption, and on the same basis, and there are so many things that are, that are uh, like an, uh, a type or a picture and form an uh, uh, analogy of these things, they speak of these, picturize these things. So you see, Israel delivered from Egyptian bondage, crossing the Red Sea, is a type of our salvation. We were delivered by blood, the blood of the Passover lamb, and by power across the Red Sea. We were delivered by the power of God and saved. And then uh, the bread coming down from heaven is a picture of what? Christ coming down from heaven. And then the incarnation, the bread. This is the true bread. Jesus said of himself, this is the true bread that came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread he shall live. And the bread that I will give is my flesh. So you see in the manna, the 16th chapter that we had just before, Christ coming down from heaven, the incarnation. You see in the rock being smitten, Christ crucified. And you see in the gushing forth of the waters from the rock, the Holy Spirit given. Now look, the manna, Christ incarnation. Smiting the rock, the crucifixion of Christ. And the waters gushing forth, the coming forth of the Holy Spirit upon believers. Look at that sixth verse again. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it. Until Christ was crucified, the Holy Spirit did not come and fill the believers and, and uh, infill the uh, company of believers in, on the day of Pentecost. And we find that uh, God had told Moses in the fifth verse, he says, Take thy rod, take this rod, thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand and go. This rod is typical of the judgment of God, isn't it? Isn't that what Moses did with it back in uh, Egypt? He smote Pharaoh and the Egyptians with the rod of judgment. And Christ was smitten with a rod of judgment. And until Christ was crucified and bore the sins of, our, of, uh, of ours of, upon himself, there could come no blessing from the Holy Spirit of God. And all this had to be done. Now then, in verse uh, 7, And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And I want you to notice verse 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Then, the word then is very important. After the Red Sea, after the Song of Redemption, after the manna from heaven, after the water from the rock, then came Amalek. Okay, after our salvation, after Christ being received as the bread of life, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, then what takes place in the life of believer? A battle, a conflict. Amalek is typical of the flesh. You know, until you were saved by Christ, the bread of life, until you recognized him as crucified, until the Holy Spirit came into your heart and life, you didn't have this battle. But when you have a new nature, a divine nature, and you're saved, and the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, then the conflict with the flesh begins. There was no conflict before uh, Paul tells us in Galatians, look at Galatians 6, 7, uh, 5, 17 rather, 5.17 and see what Paul says about the flesh and the Spirit. He says, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary uh, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. And so he tells us that the "...the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh." In other words, there's a conflict. Then, after the Holy Spirit's coming, then came Amalek. Amalek is a picture of the flesh. And by the way, God will uh, show us in this chapter that there be war with... If you glance down to verse 16, it says that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And finally, there's an end to him. If you study Amalek in the Old Testament, you'll find it's a type of the flesh. That Amalek himself was a grandson of Esau. Remember, Esau was a man of the flesh. He sold his birthright for a mess of pottage to Jacob. And you find that this is the first one that's to oppose Israel after redemption. What's the first Who's the first one that opposes you after salvation and after the Holy Spirit comes? You begin to see right then you have a battle on your hands with the flesh. The world, the flesh and the devil, but especially from within. You know, I was asking an old Indian gentleman when he was saved, converted, what it felt like to be a Christian. And he said it feels like two bulldogs on the inside fighting with each other. And that's what the Christian's life is when the when the flesh comes and tries to uh, have conflict with a new nature, the spiritual nature that's within you. You see, when you're saved, you do not lose the old nature. You only gain a divine nature, the new one. And that means there's going to be conflict. You see, if God changed the old nature within you, and you had nothing but a new nature, a divine nature, then there wouldn't be any reason for conflict. And that's an argument to prove that, as some people say, when you're saved, God takes your old nature and does away with it and gives you a completely new nature. No, He doesn't. God imparts a new nature. Salvation is the impartation of the divine nature. And then you have the ability to combat that old nature that's within you. Don't ever be deceived and think the old nature's gone. Some people have been deceived in that direction. Now, when I become a Christian, the battle's over. No, when you become a Christian, the battle begins. Not over. It just begins. And you're going to wrestle with the flesh as long as you live. But thank God, one day when when you're taken to heaven and glorified and in the sight of God, God is going to put an end to that conflict when Jesus comes. And you're going to be glorified together uh, with Christ and be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And then you won't have that conflict. But it says, Then came Amalek. The word then is very important. Look at it. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose you out, choose us out, men, and go fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with a rod of God in mine hand. And so Joshua did as Moses had said unto him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill and came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed, and Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat there on I want to get, get. I wanted to try to give you a picture of Moses. If he had this rod of God, he was probably holding it up with both hands, the rod, to indicate that God would judge the enemy, and to depend upon God. He was holding it up before God in the sense that he was depending upon God to give him the victory. But something else had to take place. There was not only the intercession of Moses, but there was a battle that Joshua undertook to fight with uh, the sword. The sword is typical of the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And we'll find that Joshua fought. And these two helpers, Aaron and Hur, went up to the top of the hill. And you might say they were prayer warriors and sustainers of Moses in this conflict. Uh, it says in verse 10, So Joshua did as Moses had said unto him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, uh, and her went up to the top of the hill came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. When he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy and they took a stone and put it under him. And sat there, he sat there on. And Aaron and her stayed up his hands, the one on the one side uh, and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek. In other words, he, uh, he did not destroy Amalek, but he discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So this conflict was only uh, seized for the moment. The battle, the, 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 the battle was won, but the war was not over. There would be war with Amalek from generation to generation. So each time you and I fight with the flesh... You might say, well, I had a battle with the fleshly part of my life and I overcame. He'll come back too. You're not through with him yet. And so you find that he keeps returning. Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. This is the way you and I win the victory over the world, even the flesh and the devil, is with the Word of God. Remember Jesus when he was tempted? He quoted to Satan. He said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And three times over, Jesus quoted from the book of Deuteronomy and quoted this to Satan in his uh, attempt to uh, deceive or to tempt Jesus. And Jesus quoted the scripture to him. And he overcame by the word of God. He says, Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God shall man live. And then he goes on, and two more times he was tempted of Satan, and he answered with uh, the sword of the Spirit as well. And you and I are told in Ephesians chapter 6 to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that we we can win the battle that way. It says in verse 14, The Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses, in other words, there was a potential and the promise that Amalek would finally be overcome. But also in this chapter, it shows that there would be war from generation to generation. Verse 15, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah-Nissa. And this means the Lord is my banner. I'll hold up the banner of the Lord when I'm fighting with Amalek. I'll just uh, d- depend upon God. Verse 16, for he said, Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. In Deuteronomy 25, if you care to look quickly. Deuteronomy uh, 25. See if I can find it for you. Uh, verse, uh, verses 17 and 18, we'll see what God says about the future of Amalek. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 and 18. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way, when ye were come forth out of Egypt. How he met thee by the way, and smote the hindermost of thee, even, from, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary and feared, not God. Uh... Let's read verse 19. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land of which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out, look here, the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. So God has promised a victory over Amalek at some point in time. If you have the 18th chapter, and by the way, we won't read all of this. But I will pick up and show you uh, a few things in the 18th chapter. Verse 1. When Jethro, the priest of Midian, now this is Moses' father-in-law, it says that, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought uh, Israel out of Egypt, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah or Zephora as some say, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, and her two sons, of which the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien in a strange land. That's what Gershom means. And in verse 4, in the name of the other was Eliezer. For God, uh, the God of my father, said he was mine help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife unto Moses into the wilderness where he encamped at the mount of God. And he said unto Moses, I, thy father-in-law... Uh, Jethro, am come to thee, and thy wife, and her two sons with thee. And Moses went out and, uh, to meet his father-in-law, and did obeisance, and kissed him. He bowed down, kissed him, uh, and they asked each other of their welfare, and they came into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done unto Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the travail that had come upon them by the way, and how the Lord delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel, whom he had delivered out of the uh, hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who hath delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Now look, for in the thing wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came and all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' uh, father-in-law before God. Now, I want you to notice some instructions now. In verse 13, It came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood by Moses from the morning unto the evening. And when, the, and when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone, and all the people stand by thee from morning unto evening? And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and the other, and I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. As Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good wonder God hadn't thought of it before but you know the Moses father-in-law was looking out for the ease and the welfare of Moses and himself and a lot of times we we succumb to advice from the human standpoint to relieve us of some of our responsibilities when if we would go ahead and take those responsibilities Moses was doing all right wasn't he the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He was doing very well. But Jethro said, Now Moses, that's just too hard for you. Do you know what that? that's what the family of most preachers say to them? That's what all the kinfolks say? Why don't you ease yourself a part of the burden that you have? In fact, it's not good, good advice in spiritual matters. Not good, good to take the advice either of uh, kinfolks. Because they'll come along and they'll tell you, well now listen, you shouldn't be doing all this. Why don't you do this or that or the other? Well, Moses got this in his head from Jethro and finally God commanded him to go ahead and distribute the power and we read of it in the book of Numbers. I'll give you a verse in a moment. It's just like when God told him, you know, that he was going to take them into a land that flowed with milk and honey. Remember the promise? And that was the promise way back there in Egypt. And all through the book of Exodus. And then finally, when it came time, they said, well, now we have to go over and check it out and see if it's really so. So they sent spies over there to check it out and see if it it was a land that flowed with milk and honey. And they came back with a report and said, surely it is. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. But then you had uh, ten... Uh, Ten of those spies that came up with the idea and they said, Well, yes, but there are giants in the land and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And we're not able to go in. But Joshua and Caleb says we're well able to take the land, right? You had Joshua and Caleb that knew that they could take the land. So, when they sent these spies out to inquire and to search out the land, they did it at God's command but it was only because they would not do it, at, uh, take the land at God's Word. You see, sometimes God bears long with us, and He gives us what we ask for, because we can't take Him at His Word to start in the first place. We preached on Gideon, I believe it was last Sunday, wasn't it, or Sunday before. And you know, Gideon, God says, Gideon, you go, and you, I'm going to deliver the, the Midianites into your hand. Gideon says, Now, I'm too weak. How do I know? He says, Go in this thy strength. I'm going to deliver them as one man. Gideon takes a fleece and he says, Now, God, if you're going to do this, I'm going to put this fleece out, and if you'll make it wet, I'll know you're going to do it. So God made condescends to answer Gideon's plea for the fleece to be wet as he laid it upon the ground. The dew came down and the fleece was wet. And so Gideon wasn't satisfied and he said, Now God, I'm going to ask you again. You know, we never can learn to take God at His word. I used to hear old Dr. George Norris, J. Frank's son, preach. And he said, If you pray about something, believe God, leave it there. And it doesn't mean we should not persist in prayer, but we should believe God that He's going to do it. Because we've asked Him to do it. And we put it in His his court, right? The ball's in His court when we ask God... and ask him to take uh, responsibility. The Bible says, casting all your care upon him and then turning back and carrying it yourself. No. Casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. We sing a song, take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Are we willing to do that? So, O'Ginnin, he he put the fleece down and he said, Now, God, I want it to be dry on the fleece and, and do all around it. God says, okay, I'll do that too. And so he did that. It came time to go and fight. uh, That uh, God told Gideon, he says, now the uh, the Midianites are delivered into your hand. You know what? But the Lord already knew what he'd say. So he says, now I'll tell you, you go down and you take the Midianites. But he says, if you don't want to go, I'll send the servant with you and you'll go down there and hear what the enemy is saying in his tents. In their tents, so he went down, and the enemies were uh, dreaming of a barley cake. That came down and flattened all their tents out. And the enemy was saying, "This is the sword of Gideon." So then, Gideon was convinced that God had already told the enemies that they had lost the battle. So he finally went down. You know, took a long time to convince him. Why does it take us so long to be convinced that when God tells us something, He means exactly what He says, nothing different? And when God speaks to us, we ought to take him at his word and obey that word. Well, God had given Moses charge, and he'd given him commission, he'd given him his spirit, and anointed him with power. And if you look over in the book of Numbers, and I'll try to shorten this a bit, if you look in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, quickly, uh, verse 16, because of the fact that... Uh, Moses could not get this thought that Jethro had put in his mind about dividing the power with the elders of Israel. The Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there. Now look. And I will take of the Spirit which is upon thee, And put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. You see, God says, "I'm going to. If if you're not going to shoulder the the job that you have to do, then you're going to have to share the spirit that I poured upon you to others, so that the job will be done." And that was just a distribution of the power. It didn't improve anything. All it did was distribute the power to other people so that the same job would be done that Moses was doing. Because the Spirit had to be shared with these others. And so when God calls you to do a job, He's going to give you the ability to do it. And don't always be complaining about the load being too heavy. If it's too heavy, God in due time will find a way to relieve you of part of it. But meanwhile, you just take the load that He's given you. And in due time, he'll give you the proper help. So anyway, Moses' father-in-law, you go and read the rest of this chapter. We'll read some of it just to give you the thought. Uh, It says in verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and all this people that is with thee, for the thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. You're just not able to do this. Who said he wasn't able to do it? Yeah, throw this. You see, sometimes we're, we lean on the arm of the flesh and we say, well, I'm not able to do it. But if God's Spirit rested upon Moses, he was able to do it, right? Now, if you'll notice, it says, Hearken now unto my voice, and I will give thee counsel. God could have given Moses counsel he had before. And God shall be with thee. Be thou, be thou for the people to word, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. As if this was new to Moses. He already knew that. You know, sometimes my kin folks come around and say, Now, Brother Joyce, if you'll do this and if you'll do that and if you'll do the other, as if I didn't know a thing about it all these years. It's just like something new, you know. I never thought of it or heard of it. You get advice from some of the kin folks out there, and they'll tell you, Now, this is what you ought to do in your church. This is how you ought to handle your affairs. This is what you ought to do depending upon God. And you can get advice from every direction and counsel from everyone. But you know, if God can tell them, he could tell me too, couldn't he? I remember Dr. Oldham was painting at Calvary Baptist Church one day, and he's up there on the ladder so high, and and sweat rolling off his face and he's trying to keep the church properties up and he's up there painting and some young guy come up there and he says, Dr. Oldham, he says, the Lord told me this morning to come hold a meeting for you. And Dr. Oldham looked kind of down and the sweat was running off his face and he said, you know, he said, I talked to him early this morning he didn't tell me a thing about it. So, you know, God's able to talk to the preacher as well as he is someone else out there on the outside to tell him what to do. I've had that happen time and again. People call me up and say, Brother Joyce, the Lord told me to come and hold you a meeting, or told me to come preach for you Sunday morning or Sunday night. Well, it's funny. He already laid a a message upon my heart to preach, and why would he lay a message upon my heart to preach to the people and then tell this fellow to come and take my place? So uh, that doesn't make sense, does it? And so sometimes we get all this advice uh, from others as if we didn't know anything about it ourselves. In verse 21, he says, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people, able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them, this verse 21, to be rulers of thousands, and rulers of hundreds, and rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons, and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge, so it shall be easier for thyself. It is always some... Someone wanting to make the ministry easier. Are you a Christian and want to serve God and willing to serve God? Someone coming along now. You don't need to do all that. You don't need to do all that. To make it easier, and they shall bear the burden with thee. If thou shalt do this thing and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure. You're not going to be able to endure like this. And all this people shall also go to their place in peace. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Before it was Moses bo- hearkened to the voice of God, wasn't it? And now it's Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law. And Moses chose up able men out of Israel and made them heads over people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. And they judged the people at all seasons, the hard causes they brought into Moses. But every small matter they judged themselves. And Moses... Let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way into his own land. But doesn't that tell you something? You know, if someone comes in and gives you all the advice and all the counsel, and then he says, I've got to go. I'm going to leave it with you. I've told you what to do now, and bye. You take care of it, just like I said, and they're long gone. They don't want to stay there and help you bear the load, do they? So Moses' father-in-law says, I'm going back home. It's easier on me back there. So he takes off, doesn't he? In the uh, 19th chapter, this is the preparation, by the way, in the 19th chapter for the giving of the law. And in the 20th chapter, we have the actual giving of the law and the law, the Ten Commandments that we'll study. But uh, if you'll notice the 19th chapter, they're prepared to, to go, and uh, Moses is prepared to go and meet the Lord, and he tells the people what they'll have to do and some things that they'll deal with there. Let's look at it in the 19th chapter. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. The law was given in Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim, that's the barren place, and were come to the desert of Sinai, and had pitched in the wilderness. And there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to uh, the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel you have seen what I did unto the Egyptians how I bare you on eagles wings and brought you unto myself when you think of that statement God had literally borne them upon eagles wings he had taken care of them and brought them uh, out of Egypt and into the wilderness and had already fed them with manna and already opened the rock he had changed the bitter waters into sweet waters and he had Given them water from the rock. And then he gave them victory over the first enemy that they faced, Amalek. We just now studied that. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure, special treasure, unto me above all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. God says, I'm going to raise up this nation. You're a nation that I've chosen. And you're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. You know, in the New Testament, Peter says that as far as believers are concerned, he's made us a peculiar treasure and a kingdom of priests. Every believer today, just like the nation of Israel of old had a priestly family, every believer is a member of that priestly family today. Did you know that I am only a priest on the same level as you are, a believer priest. Every believer is just as much a priest as any minister or deacon or leader that can be in the New Testament church. So we're all on the same level and we all perform a priestly function. If you look in First Peter, let me give it to you. First Peter, quickly, and uh, we won't have time to go into the rest of this, but First Peter chapter 2, look at this. <clears throat> Verse 5, it says, Ye also, as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, now look, an holy priesthood, you, believers, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, on down in verse uh, 7, it says, "...Under you therefore which believe, he is precious." I just wanted to read verse 7 to show you that it's the believer that's in view. In verse 9 it says, "...But ye are a chosen generation." Who? Believers. "...But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, just like Israel of old was, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light." As Gentile believers... And because the next verse shows us that it's Gentiles is in view, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. So we find that uh, believing Christians of this day and age of grace, Peter says that you're a holy nation, you're a chosen nation, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation and a peculiar people, a very special people. And you and I can go to God in prayer as individuals, believers. We don't have to go to an earthly priest. You don't have to come to me to go to God in prayer. You go to God in prayer, and that's your function as a as a, and your right and privilege as a believer. In fact, that's the best way to do it. It's sometimes good if we all if we pray together, and one uh, prays and we unite our hearts together in prayer. But even in the, that uh, instance, we're all exercising our priestly right, aren't we? Because we're all believing and we're all praying in our heart for maybe the same thing that the one that words the prayer is praying for. When we pray individually, we do the same thing. We pray to God on the, and function in a priestly fashion in that way. We won't have time for anything further, but in the 19th of Exodus, we'll pick up there in the 19th and give you the 20th chapter where the law is given. And then the 21 through 23, we have the uh, various rights and ordinances and diverse laws and ordinances that are given and special uh, situations that we'll be involved with, you get into chapter 25 and from then on we have to do with the tabernacle and its furnishings and uh, what it means and we've studied the tabernacle before and we'll probably give you an overview of that tabernacle again.